Let's pray together. Just remain seated. Father God, Lord, at the start of this new year, the challenges haven't gone away. The challenge to witness to your love and your message is still as strong as ever. And we pray for your blessing, Father, and your energy and your inspiration to help us do that to the best of our abilities in all the activities with young and old, for ourselves and for um, friends outside of, of these walls. Whatever, whatever action we do, Lord, bless it and with your spirit. And Lord, the challenges of uh, the members of this family remain the same. And there are new challenges ahead. Lord, we think of all those that Steve uh, read out today. We think of Wendy and the family. We think of Gareth Avery and, and his family. We think of Anne as she continues to search for work. We think of Rob. We think of Simon's mum. We think of the Crowthers. And we think of Sam and Beth. And we think of Ruth. So many different circumstances, Lord. But we know that you are with each one of us as we go through our daily lives. Help us to be aware of that. And to know that in our hearts. Amen. In the New Year theme that the MB kind of gives the general gist for the mornings, the idea is... Um, through, in January we think about rejuvenation and, and this morning was penciled in as being about the role of the word of God in our rejuvenation and in a week where we have had sad news and we've seen horrific things um, I think it's a time where we really appreciate the, the comfort and the strength from the word of God and the fact that we have such a rock uh, to build our lives on and one of the readings for today um, is uh, probably one of the most memorable passages uh, of comfort and strength. Just six little verses that many of us might be able to uh, recite by memory that speak of God's reassuring presence, his faithful presence in our lives, whatever the circumstances. And so Sylvia is going to read for us uh, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you, Sylvia. Such beautiful and, and memorable words that, that mean so much. And I always think of uh, Nancy. Um, because on her bench outside in the car park, that's the, the verse that's quoted, isn't it? Let's um, really absorb them by seeing them together um, 
This is from the hymn book. Sorry, Ben, I should have given you a bit of notes about how quick fire these are coming. Um, This is from the hymn book number 12, if you want to follow the music. The Lord is my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lay down to lie. In pastures green he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. So Psalm 23, described as a sheep wandering through life and God as our shepherd. His guiding rod and uh, supporting staff there beside us. But we're not sheep that are left in the field or even the pen overnight. We're sheep that are invited into the shepherd's house to dwell there. And not as unwanted squatters, but as honoured guests. Anointed with oil and a table is prepared for us. So we're going to share in that meal in a few moments and Andrew is going to give thanks to the bread. Thank you, Andrew. Father God and dear Lord Jesus, we're so thankful you brought us here this morning to remember something that we've not forgotten but perhaps is quite a way down in our thoughts. But here on the table before us is this loaf of bread. And that reminds us, Jesus, that you are our shepherd. We thank you for being our shepherd. It's easy to remember you when things are going well in our lives. And we thank you for that. But sometimes, Lord, we feel alone when we're walking, perhaps, in dark valleys Or places where we feel hemmed in. But as we stop and rest a while now, we think, Lord, that you're there right with us. Alongside us. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Jesus, for steering us towards our Heavenly Father. For leading us. And we pray now that we might be strengthened spiritually. And our resolve might be more to stay close to you. So thank you for this bread now. Bless it to us and help us to keep that vision of your father's house before us in the time ahead. Amen. This is the meal which the good shepherd shares with his disciples. Mark is going to offer thanks to the wine. Yesterday, Father, I looked out of the window at home and saw the darkest clouds I think I'd ever seen. And my mind was taken right back to Genesis when there was just darkness. And then you revealed yourself in in light to the universe. And then I was taken in my mind to the cross which I always thought probably was the second most darkest period since that time in Genesis and then Father you rent the veil from top to bottom and your light was revealed to us again the glory shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Father, each of us has our own dark times, the valley of death through which we have to go through. And Father, we know that you promise us all sorts of wonders in Jesus. So Father, even at times when we don't feel we can seek your face, reveal your face to us because we know you're not far from each and every one of us. And as we share this half-filled cup down, let us remember actually in figure, your cup overflows with love for each of us. Forgive us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything so that we could share this meal, and as we prayed, our cup overflowed. And for new growth, sometimes you have to either prune or or stir the waters a little bit. And so that's a little bit of what I aim to do this morning. But first of all, a confession. I think it is a confession I've made before um, from here, but as it's therapeutic to confess, I'm going to do it again. Um, (coughs) Growing up at Bradford's uh, meeting, uh, there were lots of older brothers and sisters who I had utmost respect for and looked up to. And uh, there was one thing that they seemed to have in common, and that was that when you looked at their Bibles, they were all kind of well-worn and wrinkled, and the pages almost dropping out of them. I thought, well, that must be, that must be the, the source and secret of their wisdom. And so I got home, and I started licking the, <laughs> the edges of the Bible, <laughs> and got a bit of tap water onto them, so they all started to wrinkle up. And my Bible looked wrinkled and worn and battered, but I was no wiser. Um, so with that confession out of the way, <laughs> what I want to think about this morning is, is how we read the Bible. And I know you've been reading the Bible for longer than I have, and, and uh, that seems like a, either an arrogant or a stupid statement, but I think it's a, it's a profound uh, statement for me anyway, because it's not an easy question. The Bible is not an easy book. By its very nature, it's a library of books saying different things to different people and different times. So how do we actually read the Bible? I like this um, slide, um, which especially given our our well-traveled guests, I have to cite that I got from a brother from Australia, (laughs) um, a a brother called Dave Burke. And I think it's a great um, illustration of of actually how we should read the Bible. Um, And it's not something that I do well enough, I don't think. So say we have a verse that we want to understand, we want to know what it, what it says. We could just read the text of that verse and apply it however, however we want to, but we'd have no idea if we're taking it in or out of context, because that verse sits in a paragraph, and that paragraph is a, a chapter division in our Bibles, and which is part of a book. So at the very least, we need to know how that verse fits into the narrative of the whole story, how does it fit into what went before? How does it fit in with what goes after? And then you've got to think about, well, what type of writing is it? What's the literary context of, of the verse that we're looking at? Is it poetry? Is it history? Um, is it supposed to be figurative, like a metaphor? Some parts of the Bible, it's hard to tell. Some parts of the Bible seem like they're kind of 
true stories, but told in a figurative way sometimes. So, so how do we know and how do we tell? And then it gets even, even more complicated. How does it fit into the cultural and historical settings to which it was written? And I think this is perhaps the bit that I do least and is probably the most important uh, a bit. Who were those words written to, first of all? And how would they have understood them? How would their societies have read those words? And what cultural references are there that we don't just don't quite pick up on, that don't register or resonate with us? Fundamentally, what was the point for them first of all? Because that's who it was written to in the first place. What issues was it addressing? Just as an, by way of an example, something that I just recently, over the last couple of weeks, become a little bit more aware of, and it's made me think a little bit, and that's to think that if you take pretty much all the New Testament writings, they were written with the um, sincere belief that Jesus was going to return soon, probably in the lifetimes of the people who wrote it. You can tell that from their writings. And I rarely think about that. But when I do actually think about that and, try and, and think of the impact of that, it, it, I think it sheds light on what were their priorities, what, what was the absolute focus of the things they dealt with, and what to them was just of, of no interest whatsoever because they anticipated uh, Jesus' return imminently. And whilst we anticipate Jesus' return, 2,000 years down the track, um, other issues become a little bit more of a priority to us, uh, the, the longer-term longer issues. And so putting, understanding the context and, and the history of with how the words are set, I think, um, is, is vital. But when you put it like this, um, reading the Bible and trying to understand its meaning seems like a challenge that's too, too great. It might seem off-putting, like the Bible is just for scholars. And that's absolutely not the truth. And the Bible is for all of us. But it's not just a monologue from God. It's not just a monologue from God. It's to different people in different times. And the key thing is, God asked his children to write the story down. So it's in their words too. Just before we leave this slide, the, the, um, like I said, the harbour is the kind of cultural and, and historical side of things, I think. It is a specialist area for highly trained academics and, and professor types to find out the cultural and historical details but we can make an effort to discover what they found out. We can look at study Bible notes and things like that to try and understand the setting of the words which we're trying to read. And because that stops us from misreading the text. And um, if there's anything that I think hampers my reading of the Bible, it's prejudice. Prejudice is the biggest obstacle for me reading the Bible. And it's when I try and... Uh, in think that the words were written to me first of all in my culture in my society and in my life and the thing with um, prejudice is that it's a bit like an octopus and you don't see it first of all normally you don't see it it's just not there it's just it's just in the background it's completely camouflaged there is no octopus but actually there is and it's only when the water is stirred a little bit that the prejudices leap out um, that's, that's quite a neat trick that isn't it <laughs> In slow motion and reverse. A nifty trick. But my question to you is, what prejudices do you have 
that affect you reading God's word that you don't even know are there, perhaps. It's really something to think hard about because we're so caught up in our lives and our circumstances and our issues that sometimes we fail um, to see uh, the prejudices that, that really are there. But so far it's all been very analytical. And there is something that's missing from this analytical approach. And that is that behind it all is God's call to humanity. And as well as the analytical approach to understanding what the words say, we also, uh, and more importantly, um, need to try and get to the heart of God that is behind the words. I'm going to take an example which is kind of raised by uh, one of our, the other one of our Old Testament daily readings today. But if you think about the conflict between um, Israel and its Arab, Arab neighbours, um, that is no flash-in-the-plan recent squabble, is it? It's something that's gone on for a long time. If you take the ultimate long view, it goes back to Abraham's two children, Isaac and Ishmael. And we're going to um, read about uh, that story. Um, first of all, through Joe, we're going to read Genesis chapter 16. Thanks, Joe. Okay, reading from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do to her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that was beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Little Roy. It is still there between Cades and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. <clears throat> I put it to you that this is not the way it would have been written. Um, if Yahweh was in fact a local god made up by the Israelites, um, just another ancient god to give the people their story and their festivals. 
Israel's God was the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here he is also the God of Hagar and Ishmael. Just think about that for a little while. And think about prejudices which we um, view things with. I'm sure the prejudices of the people, uh, of the Israelites, as they grew up, God is our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here he is also the God of Hagar and Ishmael. In verse 13 it says, She gave this name to to the Lord who spoke to her, You are God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And God blessed her and said that her children would form a great nation. But this, this story, a lot like many of the kind of ancient stories, really challenges us because the culture is so different. I mean, it's a, it's a, a fantastic story, isn't it, where nobody comes out well. Abraham, as limp as a three-legged dog, totally spineless. Sarah, bitter, twisted by circumstances. Hagar, only too quick to sharpen the claws and get them out. It's like the ultimate episode of Coronation Street. A motley crew if ever there was one. But in it all, God is there, and God is calling them, and God is challenging their prejudices, the prejudices for that culture and for ours too. I'm going to follow the story a little bit further through reading Genesis chapter 21 and verse 8 to 21, and Lucy's going to read that for us. Genesis 21, 8 to 20. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So the family situation plays out pretty much as it did before. 
Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. Thoughtfully, he gives them a knapsack, because that's going to last a long time, isn't it? Um, but this, this story, with all its kind of complexities of the relationship between the, the different people, but we see again that God is with uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Did you ever had that kind of question asked? If you could have, if you could have gone back in time, to say a 17-year-old, and you were in the in the playground with a 10-year-old Adolf Hitler, would you have done something? Would you have would you have taken them out? Would you would you have, would you have prevented all that that suffering and horror? It's, it's quite an interesting moral dilemma, isn't it? But given all of the um, history of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the fact that here we have um, Hagar and Ishmael being sent into the desert, it could have ended right there. But God is interested in individual people without prejudice. And here we find that, again, he's the God of Hagar and Ishmael. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying, And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to him, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? It's fascinating to us, again, because of our, our cultural distance. Abraham and his multiple se- um, sexual partners. How does that work? The system of slavery and servanthood. How does that work? Where is God in that? So building up the historical and the cultural context, the backstory can help us come to terms and to understand those different cultures and points of view. But always we have to look for the, the call of God to humanity. And I think it comes through really, really clearly uh, in this passage. But it has to be free of partisan blinkers. And that is so hard. Anyone who has football allegiances know just how hard that is. It doesn't matter what you say. Nothing can, good can come out of Manchester United Football Club. You can argue it however you want to. But it's just, from my point of view, nothing good can come out. And on such a, a fickle thing as football, I can feel the emotion and the passion and the prejudice welling up inside me. So I just can't see anything good coming out of that place. Um, but that's, that's just on a level of football, something so um, silly and as unimportant as that. How much more, um, when we think about the things that we hold much more dear, like uh, our, our, our cultural um, heritage, if you like. But God... Even these early chapters challenges our prejudice. Our New Year regeneration and rejuvenation is most powerful when we seek further and deeper and lose some of the shackles to try and get closer to the heart of God. These ancient stories are particularly thought-provoking because the culture is so different, so different from the New Testament culture. But then our culture is so different from the New Testament and the Old Testament culture. How does God speak to us today? And it's our job through thought and prayer and understanding God's heart to bring 
um, God's message to humanity into our circumstances. See, God has seen human force and society developing over the millennia from the cultures that we see here through the New Testament cultures to our culture. He's seen the evolution of our society. And he's spoken to people throughout all those circumstances. And that tells me that because the Bible tells me so, there's never going to be the answer that God uh, was looking to us. He's not the goal of what God is looking for from us. It's not just a monologue from God to parrot out. He wants us to discover him for ourselves and be able to apply it in our circumstances. I had a maths teacher who was particularly brilliant. And the way he was brilliant was he'd, do, he'd put something on the notice board, on their blackboard. It was blackboards back then, kids. They'd put something on the blackboard and say, what do you think about that? And so we'd, we'd look at it and go on obviously. And say, what, what if, what, I wonder what happens if we he'd put something else on the board. Um, still gormous and they thought oh, I wonder I wonder if I just um, if I just put this on and slowly the brighter ones the penny started to drop and gradually build up this picture and by the end of it it felt like we'd discovered the whole thing for ourselves he was crafty that maths teacher but we thoroughly understood exactly where he was coming from because gradually he built it up so that we were working through it obviously I can't remember it now it was to do with calculus just a word (laughs) but at the time it felt like we'd uncovered this for ourselves like we were the pioneers and i think god does that with us i think he leads us on a journey of our understanding i think you can see the change in, in human society from the ancient stories of genesis through to where we are now and i think god has led us on that journey in the bible god lets his children tell the story so that we can go on this process But above all, we have to look for the the heart of God um, behind the text. We're going to close um, by singing um, this uh, song from the hymn book, number 151. But taking um, Steve's um, line from last week, I've highlighted some words at the end, which I think are the reason why I chose this, this hymn. As we go into the next week, Lit by thy word with heavenly flame, whose glow shall glorify thy name. Lord of all being. Heavenly Father, we know that we need to be reminded more often than we need to be instructed. We know what you are like. We know your love. We know how our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, showed that love to us. And yet, week by week, day by day, Lord, we need to be brought back to you and renewed. We need to Think again about your covenant with us and our promise to you. We need to think afresh about how our lives demonstrate the love that we have learned from you and how we show that to others. We need a new to examine our prejudices 
and remove those from getting in the way of understanding and knowing and loving you. And Lord, we thank you for this time to come apart and do those things. And we pray that you will continue to be there. Lord, I know you, you, you will be there, but to make us aware, to prod us, to make things uncomfortable when necessary in order to remind us of our commitment to you and your love and commitment to us. Amen.